What's up, everyone? I'm Colton, and welcome to Navigating DeFi, a podcast where we walk through DeFi projects and concepts in depth. This week, I'm joined by Kirk, or One True Kirk, on Twitter, and he is the founder and creator of Vault Protocol, which is looking to build an inflation-resistant stablecoin. Throughout this episode, we'll walk through how Vault Protocol works, we'll walk through why building an inflation-resistant stablecoin is important, we'll walk through all of the important mechanisms underlying the protocol, and we also visit the VCon tokenomics and liquid governance model that they plan to implement. As always, I want to remind everybody that these show notes are available via the link in the description. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. How's it going, Kirk? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, for taking the time to join me. Thank you, Colton. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for this conversation because over the past like couple of years or in DeFi's like short time span, we've seen all kinds of stable coins ex experiments, right? We've seen centralized stable coins that are backed by cash, cash equivalents like USDC, USDT. We've seen collateral backed USD pegged stable coins like LUSD, DAI. We've seen uh, algorithmic stable coins that are backed by, uh, I guess, nothing but bad game theory and economics and like, you know, empty set dollar and basis fairly cash. decent game theory, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But uh, may most of them rest in peace. Uh, I mean, some still survive to this day, but most of them have not, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. And then recently we've seen this wave of stable coins uh, like Frax and Fay that are kind of backed by uh, reserves or, or protocol controlled value. But what we haven't seen is a stable coin that's backed by collateral and forking the US dollar and, and removing inflation, at least that I'm not aware of. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for this. But before we before we dive in, I think there's a couple of primitives that we should probably cover uh, just to kind of like set the vocabulary for this conversation, um, including raw fuse pools, Fay, uh, the consumer price index, and probably PCV for those who are not familiar. So um, for, the, for those who have never heard of Rari Fuse Pools, they're basically just isolated lending markets, right? They're very similar to Compound and Aave. I think most people are familiar with that. Fay is just a stablecoin that's backed by protocol-controlled value. The Consumer Price Index, or the CPI, is basically just a metric for tracking inflation. Uh, flawed as it may be, as some people believe, I think it's like the best one we have. And we'll then, talk about that. I'm yeah, sure. and we can talk about that. <laughs> and then PCV is just protocol controlled value, which is uh, any type of value that is controlled by a DeFi protocol. Uh, we don't have to get into the nuances of that. I think it's pretty straightforward. So with all of the vocabulary and precursor stuff in mind, can you now give a brief overview of Vault and, and what it is? So there's two sides to Vault. First, we'll talk about the stablecoin side of it, you know, because in any DeFi protocol, it's like, how does it work under the hood? And then what? what's on the outside and what's right. it trying to accomplish. So what's what we're trying to accomplish for a, a vault holder is the idea of a stable coin that will actually be stable, right? Like, you know, you have it and 10 years, 20 years later, the amount of stuff you can buy with it is the same. Um, you know, if a vault, if a hamburger is three volt today, it should be three volt in 50 years, give or take, right? You know, we don't guarantee that it could be perfect, right? And every good could fluctuate. Um, but unlike fiat currencies today where it's basically programmed in that you should lose money, you know, where they inflate one to 2% per year is the target. That's what's supposed to happen right now. It's more. Um, and most stable coins are pegged to the dominant fiat currency, which is the dollar right today. Uh, we're trying to stride the middle ground of still, you know, we're associating with the dollar in some way, right? We are tracking the U S dollar CPI and being connected to the U S economy, but we're forking it away. So we're saying no, the default, right? If you're just a holder of the stable coin is that, you earn the inflation rate. So your value is protected, um, which is a very different situation now where the default is that 
anyone who's holding really any currency at all in the world pretty much was always losing value and they have to go deposit into somewhere where they could earn yield or take some kind of risk in order to protect their savings. So I, I don't, I, like I mentioned earlier, I don't think I've seen a design like this. Um, and there's probably like good reason for that most of the time, because if you think about uh, traditional borrowing protocols, when somebody's borrowing a dollar, they don't want it to appreciate in value. And we'll get into why a little bit later, but for now, I'm more interested in what kind of inspired this inflation resistant design. Like, why did you think this was the route you wanted to go down? So I think it's something that a lot of people in crypto are realizing is important right now. You know, this. Let me take one step back. Even when you t look at MakerDAO's internal conversations, and for those listening, you know, MakerDAO, the issuer of DAI, the largest decentralized stablecoin, um, they have often talked about the desirability of being independent from the dollar one day, you know, and the, keeping a peg to the, you know, if they're the mission of a lot of cryptocurrency issuers and, you know, the original motive even of Bitcoin to a big extent is to create a currency and a money that is independent from the control of the state. Um, and I think a lot of people have always wanted to do this, but it's like, how do you start a new unit of account from not, from scratch, right? And like, also, there's a lot of network effect. And that's why, like, why don't we see much adoption with, like, Euro stable coins? We do face a similar challenge with Volt. It's something kind of new for people. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's a little bit different about this is the idea of a guaranteed or, you know, um, baseline rate of return, which is pegged to inflation. Uh, and there have been some projects that attempt to track inflation or offer inflation resistance, but it's not a tight peg. Um, you know, so there's not a guarantee that it will actually um, actually do so, you know, even though they right. bill themselves as that being the goal. Yeah, and maybe like Rye is maybe a, a decent example of that. And it, it's also a decent example of how hard it is to bootstrap a new unit of account. Um, I think we've seen the, the dollar dominance thing is really interesting because, <laughs> because you're right. Like it, it's something that in general, the crypto ethos, ethos is pretty much against like nobody wants to be reliant on the dollar but then there's also reality right and reality says that the dollar is just the most popular unit of account on planet earth so solving for for that uh i guess that paradox or whatever is going to be very interesting but i, I also want to get into the the borrowing experience here and how this is actually going to work because i think this is the coolest part uh, of Volt because it actually takes like this money Lego meme very seriously and utilizes fuse pools to do something that uh, hasn't really been tried. I don't think most people, when they spin up a new borrowing protocol or especially a stablecoin protocol, that's a borrowing protocol, they kind of build their own systems, right? They build their own auction systems for liquidation. They build their own borrowing mechanisms. They build their own interest rate mechanisms, but you're sort of leveraging uh, a, a big primitive that kind of already exists. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how uh, borrowing works within Vault. So can you start from the beginning and kind of walk through the, the process a bit? That's right. So there's two first high level, two motivations. One is that when I was first approaching to build Vault, one of the things that was at the top of my mind was how could we make governance more scalable? Where, you know, I'm very bullish on the long-term future of um, you know Ethereum and of the crypto asset ecosystem. I think that in the future, there'll be many, many more different high quality assets and derivatives than there are now. And if you look at traditional, you know, majority vote based governance systems, it's impossible to readily onboard a lot and, and manage the parameter tuning of a large diversity of these types of things. So you see some cool things like pay protocol does a lot of optimistic governance. Um, this is something that I've been studying up on. But with vault, I had sort of the idea of like, is there any way that we could create a lending system that's as permissionless as Uniswap is? Um, yeah, I don't think claim to have gotten quite there, but we do some cool stuff. Uh, so I'll explain how that works. Um, 
And a big part of that is I asked, like, if we were going to build MakerDAO and die today, how would we do it? Um, you know, obvious makes sense to use Fuse for issuance instead of CDP vaults for those who are familiar. Um, so on Fuse, anyone can create their own lending market based on the same code base of Compound. And there's quite a few that are um, Fuse pools that are very successful, run by different types of entities. There's the one run by the tribe DAO directly. There's the Olympus DAO Fuse pool. Tetranode runs the Fuse pool there. So there's all kinds of different actors can come in and create them. Um, and so with Vault, we have the idea we could issue Vault into any of these Fuse pools in theory or create our own according to our needs. Uh, and that gives us probably like the most flexible issuance framework of um, a debt-based stablecoin. Um, you know, it'll be the easiest, you know, very, very easy for us to onboard new collateral types, you know, things that are supported by Fuse. And there's this external layer of Rari that's doing some level of, um, you know, diligence on onboarding the assets or, you know, of course there's verified and unverified Fuse pools, right? So um, we're starting with the verified safe pools and we'll have our own mechanisms to onboard new ones in the future. And last thing, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but the no, go last ahead, thing go I'll, I'll say there is that um, what I'm, my sort of my brainchild was in Vault. You know, the idea to peg to the CPI, the inflation, it wasn't my original idea. That was something that I was encouraged to do by Joey from Faye Protocol. Um, and I have really taken to it and it's like completely changed how I was planning to do the project. But the original original thought I had was how can we make this very scalable governance system for issuing on fees? And so I'll get very tangible now. Like some of you may have heard of Faye Turbo. Um, if not, I'll shill it briefly. Um, the idea of a special fuse pool where you can borrow an asset, but you can only then take it and put it into another fuse pool. You can't just walk away with it. Uh, that's the TLDR of it, meaning that it's like those who wish to underwrite loans, you know, there's this aspect of like conditional borrowing, you know, which makes sense in TradFi, right? Like you don't just borrow to do anything. It's like, oh, I want to borrow to buy this particular house, right? And they assess that and it seems, you know, that influences your rates and all that. Um, and it's the same case here. And we have the idea of using that as a governance mechanism so that the VCON token holders can take Vault, you know, or any other PCV protocol controlled value asset we have, like Faye, from this master pool, and they will borrow it and then direct it into whatever other Fuse pools exist. Um, so from the, the result of that is that in a fully liquid and flexible way, it'll be a market outcome that determines what the debt ceiling of Vault is for a given asset um, and what the stability fees are rather than governance decided. Uh, and that should hopefully result in just like much more efficient lending markets for especially longer tail assets and hopefully like a wider range of different options. Like let's say you have ETH today and you want to borrow against it. There's literally like five or six different sets of terms you could borrow against that's meaningful scale on chain, right? Like you could go into one of the three different MakerDAO vault types. You could go to Compounder Ava. You could go, you know, to Rye, decent scale, right? Liquidity, decent scale. And you end up, so you maybe you end up with like eight um, options with Fuse, you could create like 10 different Fuse pools, each with different risk spectrum and liquidity allocate among them in a way that's capital efficient. And so that's how we can compete more with some of these like centralized platforms that offer you know, a lot more options and diversity in terms of some of the um, financial arrangements you can enter. Right. And I, I was, I, the question I was going to ask a little bit earlier was, do you think that that flexibility is pretty much only enabled by using Fuse. Like I couldn't imagine building that whole system from scratch. Whereas, you know, being able to build on a primitive like Fuse kind of makes your life easier and allows you to focus on other problems. Is that true? Or, or is, did you actually consider building all of this from scratch at, at some point? So I, not only I did I consider building it from scratch, but I considered using various other systems as the basis for it at various points in time. At one point we were planning to fork the Rye code base was our hope, mm. um, mainly because 
I really like control theory and the, the way that they do it where they automatically adjust the target price to balance supply and demand is very elegant. It ended up not being the way we wanted to go because we needed more flexibility in our system. But I do still like very much agree with their ethos of having as many things as possible based on purely market forces instead of governance actions. And we'll be moving that way. And, you know, you can see that it's a similar type of goal accomplished with our liquid governance. And we'll be hoping to put other types of parameters um, under controllers or more decentralized, you know, um, market-based things in the future. Nice. And from my understanding, there's basically two forms of issuance in the Vault system. There's the uh, there's the actual, like you post collateral and then you borrow Vault against that collateral, but then there's the PEG stability module. Can you kind of go into the maybe the difference between those two, how they interact with each other and how the user, uh, how, how risk is applied to the user in either situation? Like what kind of different risks are you taking on via each type of issuance? Absolutely. So if you're a, if you're just holding Vault, you're pretty agnostic to all of this. Um, but if you are, um, so from the perspective of a Vault holder, the PSM is a way that Vault is issued directly by the protocol, right? You know, in exchange for an asset, you know, you give us a dollar one fee, we give you one Vault and less a fee. Um, and so that will be a common way for people to get Vault probably. You know, if you're if you're going to obtain Vault, you'll do it one of two ways. You'll buy it on a decentralized exchange or you'll get it directly from the PSM, most likely. Um, now you can, there's a different thing you can do, which is you can create Vault, right? You know, the same when people mint die on MakerDAO uh, or you can deposit an asset on Fuse and you'll be able to borrow Vault that's, you know, not been issued, but is available in that Fuse pool. Uh, and that's just the same as any borrower on a compound or Fuse. So it's not really any difference in the borrowing experience. Um, the main thing is that you can expect the, because Vault, you know, its price goes up over time, you'll see like the stability fee or the interest rate that's being charged in the fees pool should be relatively low because part of it is accounted for in that price. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So at the end of the day, it's all the real rate of return. Like if there's 5% inflation in a year and we charge 2% stability fee on top of that, 7% total, let's say that you're, you're paying, you know, now it's a little bit more of bear market. So that's not as common, but there's many, many times when Tetranode's fees pool, people were paying 55%, 40% to borrow stable coins during the more active times of the market and these things fluctuate. So one of the things that the Dow does is, you know, we have to manage the fact that different yield opportunities fluctuate. Um, and so the vault holders don't have to worry about any of that. Like, you know, you're in one yield farm, it dries up. Now you have to rotate um, and pay a bunch of gas, you know, that's all on the back end. And one good way to think about vault is also as like kind of a meta yield activity, right? Where we establish this baseline of a real rate of return of zero of preserving your wealth and then um, evaluate risk and deploy things based on that. And and with regards to the peg stability module, is this uh, very similar to the way it works in MakerDAO, or does it play a different role? Or I, I guess the the overarching question is, what is the significance of the peg stability module within the the whole Volt system? So there's two key differences to MakerDAO. I think that's a good example to keep focusing on because people know it pretty well. Uh, one is that we, in theory, have no objection to 100% of Volt being minted through the peg stability. You know, uh, we do have debt issuance, but that's not a requirement. It's just one of the options. The way I see it is that all, all protocol controlled value is equivalent. You know, whether we are accepting FEI or DAI or USDC in exchange for Vault or LUSD deploying them in different yield venues, um, from the Vault holder's perspective, that should all work smoothly. You know, and like the percentage of the supply that's produced from the PSM versus BU should be able to fluctuate um, without introducing volatility. Um, you know, so that's one of the ways that I think about it. Um, the other point is that unlike MakerDAO, they have a very handy asset called USDC, right? Where one die is guaranteed to always be one USDC. So 
if Dai is above target price, they can easily absorb USDC, mint Dai at a profit, and fix that problem anytime. Now, we don't have any so easy option because we also have to be earning yield on these assets, right? You know, every vault is a liability. And if you denominate it in dollars, it's going up in value. Can you expand um, on that a bit? Why, like, what is, why do you need to earn yield on, on those dollars within the, the PSM? So here's like a, an easy example. If MakerDAO had a PSM where they would mint die $1 for $1 against ETH, and then the ETH price went down, the die would be unbacked, right? Um, and it's the same situation for us, except it's more gradual, right? Because the vault price will go up. It's the other way around. Instead of the ETH price going down, it's the vault price that goes up. And so if you back vault with dollars, at, you know, if I mint one vault against $1, after a year, the vault target price is $1.05, but I still have a dollar. And so mm -hmm. now the system is under collateralized. And that's one thing that's different. Uh, you know, vault is the same as ETH or FAN in this regard and just different from like the fracked price index in the over collateralized. So there will never be um, shortfall in the system. And that means that we must always, or at least on average, we must always be earning yield that's greater than inflation. There certainly may be periods in which we don't. Uh, ideally short periods. <laughs> that's the, uh, if the government's not going to deserve Yeah, I, I mean, I would imagine like super prolonged bear markets uh, that produce like unreliable source of yield could make for an interesting problem that I guess you would have to solve for. But I think historically this has not been an issue. So is that what you're basing it on? Basically historical performance of yield, you know, over DeFi's like short lifespan. Correct, but there's also one other element to it, which is that there's a lot more yields in the world than what's on chain now. Mm. Um, and that there are, in the same sense that USDC is just tokenized dollars being brought on chain, and it's very useful to people, there could be other tokenized things that can come on chain too, um, like you know, ETF shares or government bonds from other countries and who knows what. Um, so this is something that we're actively researching and exploring. Um, but I ultimately think that like, not to get too bullish, but in order to get to yeah, a billion volt, 10 billion volt, we need real world assets probably uh, in order to sustain that yield. Because uh, that's one of our mandates is that we're going to have a guarded launch and cap the, the supply. You know, if, if people want to borrow unfused, right, as, you know, there'll be a lot that's borrowable. But as far as how many stable coins we can absorb into the PSM, that's our commitment is we will not overextend ourselves. And this is the big risk in systems like, you know, it's an easy punching bag, but I'll call out Terra, um, where they have a very high promise rate of return. And so a lot of people seeking out that rate of return and it's not fully back. It's not backed at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is if the rates go down and a lot of people want to exit the system, it will not be possible for them to do so at the desired price. Um, and so our commitment is that that will never occur and that we will always ensure that, you know, we won't promise inflation equal yield on an amount of vault that's not sustainable. You know, we're not going to go issue 10 billion volts in the first six months, you know, no matter how bullish the demand is, you know, um, that would be irresponsible, right? And that will be our way of thinking is that we are really like the same sense that everyone knows MakerDAO and DAI is very much a long-term thinking type of DAO, uh, you know, and certain, you know, other decentralized state. Some people are even more longer-term thinking than me. They want it to the contract to be immutable, um, which is really cool. But I think that what Vault holders should know is that our DAO is both going to be making a lot of updates and, you know, dynamism to the system, right? So there is some risk there, but as far as the economic management and the portfolio management, it's going to be very conservative and long-term minded. Like, you know, you want to be able to trust your vault for 10 years, 50 years, that sort of thing. Right. I resonate with that. Like, it's very rare that somebody says, oh, we're not just going to open the floodgates, you know, because I mean, it, most protocols, they want to launch and get, you know, 
10 billion TVL instantly. That's their, you know, that's their goal. Whereas you guys are thinking in a lot more of a conservative manner, but it's also realistic, right? Because it, it's easy to earn a certain amount of yield on, let's say, I don't know, $50 million. It's a lot harder to earn that yield on $350 million. So, and that, that problem just gets worse as you, as you scale up the total amount. So if you're trying to guarantee that you can earn yield that's outpacing inflation, the best way to do that is just to limit supply growth at first. Um, and, and then a, as you come up with better frameworks for producing yield and uh, come up with better frameworks for guaranteeing that you're outperforming inflation, uh, you can start to scale up accordingly. So that that makes sense to me. Uh, one question on the borrowing side that I know you've been asked a hundred times and you will continue to be asked uh, in the future. And I know this is a question you get asked all the time because one, it's a question I would ask. And then two, uh, you wrote a blog post or you wrote it in a blog post and nobody writes a question in a blog post unless uh, they've been asked that a hundred times. So, uh, you know, the, the question basically is why would you want to borrow a stable coin whose price is constantly increasing, right? If you think of uh, MakerDAO or Liquidity, for example, when you're, when you deposit ETH and then you borrow, um, let's say die against that ETH, your hope is that that die is worth a dollar by the time you go to repay your debt. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be more expensive to pay back that debt. And you, you kind of incur this implied interest rate, which you don't want. Um, you know, actually you hope it's lower than a dollar, right? So you could buy your debt back cheaper and then, and then pay it back. But, uh, with, with vault, you're basically saying, you're basically guaranteeing that the price of, of vaults is going to go up over time. So, uh, why would somebody want to do that? And, and I guess, how can they kind of hedge against that that risk of, of the price of vault going up so as a borrower? Two main, there's two main reasons you'd want to. One is that it would otherwise cost you more than inflation to borrow under the terms that you desire. You know, so you have an asset that's sufficiently risky, or you just, you know, that's not listed as collateral anywhere else, right? You know, this is one of the things we can support on Fuse, where, you know, as mentioned earlier, there were many times during the um, during the bull market where people were paying much, much more than inflation, you know, 10 times what inflation is, uh, or, or at least five times, um, inflation. And so if during those times we could have been minting vaults into those pools that we could have captured significant revenue, um, you know, if you would pay 20% to borrow die, you would pay, you know, 7% inflation plus an additional 2% to borrow vault for sure. That's still a good deal. Um, although it is still like takes some getting used to. So I don't expect, like, I definitely am not like, I will not be disappointed or bothered if there's not a lot of borrowing at first, because that's not what I mean. Like, uh, because we're also just going to be lending pay or anything. So like whether people would rather borrow vault or pay, it doesn't matter to us. Um, we can match the level of demand to hold vault with the yield sourcing either way. Um, but the other reason you might want to mint it directly on fuse is if it, the price is above pay. Uh, so in the case where the Dow, which is us, has said, Hey, you know, the PSM is full, right? We've, we've absorbed, 100 million in pay into the PSM. And that's as much as we're going to take, um, you know, for now until we can finish adding our next yield module, whatever, so we can be safe. Um, so the vault price now, but then let's say that, you know, the war is escalating, whatever, um, you know, that's not something I should joke about, but we need a little bit of humor sometimes at these times as well. <laughs> yeah, um, and the world situation is grim, you know, inflation is very high and people also think inflation will be even higher soon. Um, so there's a lot of demand to hold something like Vault in, you know, in this hypothetical scenario. And we'll say that the target price of Vault is a dollar and five cents, but the actual market price is a dollar and ten cents. Uh, you know, people are front running because they think there'll be like 20% inflation in the next year. Mm. Um, in that scenario, if you have ETH and you're like, well, I'm pretty confident, one, that it actually won't be 20% inflation, that they're overreacting. 
and two, that the Vault system will eventually return it to the target price, even though it's over the target price now. And I could make money because the the way the system prices my collateral and you know for liquidation and such relates to the target price of Vault, not the market price. So this is a critical thing, right? If Vault goes above peg, you don't get liquidated as a result of that um, using our special issuance fees pool. Um, but you will maybe have an opportunity to arbit, right? And this is right. the same thing with Rye, sort of, right? Like that's kind of what the, the, the idea is with the Rye controller is that it, if the market price is above target price, they adjust the target price down a little bit even more in reaction to it. So then they're like encouraged to be like, oh, okay, it's a good deal for me to arb this, uh, this differential. And so that same scenario could come up for us. Um, and I view it as like, that will create a soft cap on how far it could go above peg. Um, because obviously, right, it can't be twice the peg, right? Uh, then people will definitely arbit. Uh, who knows exactly where it would fall? Um, and that's something that early participants should understand is you can't have both of a capped supply and no possibility of going above target price. Um, so the main guarantee we want to make, make sure is that everyone who participates can eventually always redeem their vault for the face value on a reasonable time span. Um, you know, with a brand new stable coin, you can't guarantee that it will always be at target price on the open market. Um, and we care more about the minimum price than about it going a little bit above peg early on, uh, yeah. because that's just unavoidable. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think people uh, overestimating inflation is going to be something that happens a lot. I mean, historically, if you look at uh, macro uh, macro money Twitter or whatever, you'll see people kind of overestimating inflation all the time. And there's two aspects of this. One, people tend to just like operate on extremes. That's just how Twitter is. But then two, uh, I think the CPI, uh, maybe every once in a while, probably underreports uh, real inflation. And uh, is that a concern to you at all? Or is it something that uh, there's really just no solution for? So it's not worth kind of, you know, being too, too worried about. There's two elements to it. One is that the CPI is the most credibly neutral available option. That's why we chose it, right? That's the short answer for why we picked it. The question of how could it be improved or what are its flaws? I definitely agree that there are some. Um, the most common thing people want is for it to weight housing higher than it does. Um, you know, that's what people mostly want to change about it. Um, my argument is that what they're worried about is not just inflation, right? And that there's more things that impact the housing price than inflation. We want this to be a fairly neutral and natural global unit of account, right? That like you could have the U.S. housing market double and commodities and gas prices in Japan not change, right? Um, you know, and so that's what we want to focus on more is like, I think there's some overall correlation of like housing prices within all the world's industrial capitals, right? And that's the kind of housing price we want to care about, not the specific housing price in San Francisco due to like zoning problems, you know? Um, and there's a lot of other like, not to get into this too much, but everything is about incentives all the way down. And just like, you know, in DeFi, it's all about incentives. In TradFi, the structure of the housing market is heavily due to the regulatory situation around mortgages and lending. And the fact that like a certain asset class is basically like enshrined and canonized. And just like how like which stocks are part of the index fund, which ones are part of the top ones, you know, all these things are ultimately very arbitrary. Uh, and there's a lot of things that are not pure market outcomes, actually. Um, and the, things like equity markets and housing markets don't respond just due to inflation. And so that's why I do actually think that the current CPI weighting is fairly appropriate. Um, although what I would want most is to internationalize um, because it's just a US CPI data. Um, 
it would be great if we could bring in at least data from Europe. Um, you know, of course, you have to make sure that the data is trustworthy. And so that's the the hard part. Um, and so we'll be slow about that. But in, definitely in the future, like if I picture it five years out, it's not US exclusive data, uh, but it's not something that I'm in a rush to uh, to yeah, do this. You guys, it's, it's not a problem that you're here. looking to solve right now, essentially. Uh, yeah, not that I need to solve internally, but if like, you know, it's the kind of thing where we could see like grants being given out for people who help, you know, build out a new framework. And then we want this to be, this is the other thing that I should talk about in this regard is that we want this to be a very open standard. So many people listening are likely aware that Frax is also releasing the FPI, Frax Price Index, which is another inflation pegged stable coin. You know, the main difference being that like Frax, it is not, um, not fully collateralized. So there's a certain additional element of risk there. They'll probably be commensurate rewards. Um, you know, that's how these things tend to go. But, um, we want to make sure that ourselves, FPI, and any other future inflation derivatives on chain target the same inflation metric, uh, because that allows us to create much deeper liquidity um, and high integrations. And so we're intending to make this Oracle an open standard where it'll be, you know, any DAO who uses it can be added and it can be a thing where we, you know, we all opt in for an upgrade type of thing. Uh, and that we have it as sort of like a public good for deciding what the actual CPI target is. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And and speaking of, you know, we, we kind of touched on how price appreciation of, well, price appreciation of Volt is guaranteed, but there's no uh, like hard price ceiling, right? People can over-speculate and it might trade above uh, what, what it's expected price is. And there was a conversation that you had on Twitter that I think is really interesting that I just want to bring into the episode for people who just aren't following on Twitter. So Manette um, Supply, he does... He's a guy on Twitter or a girl, I'm not sure. Uh, doesn't matter, but does a uh, he does risk analysis for various protocols in the DeFi space. He also works on a governance-based project called, I think, Tally. Uh, but his critique was basically that he doubt he doubts that a debt-backed CPI stablecoin would work without negative rates, and so uh, he is concerned basically about adverse selection. So if DeFi yields are less than the CPI then users will just hold the CPI stablecoin. And then otherwise, if the, DeFi, if the DeFi yields are higher, they would just farm themselves. So basically he's saying that there's like no natural seller for the stablecoin itself, which I'm assuming uh, that the result of that would be that it just continues to appreciate beyond what its expected price is. And I was, I, I'm curious about what your, your response to that is, because it kind of goes down the rabbit hole a bit, which I want to do. So do you mind just kind of starting there and, and going down that rabbit hole? Yeah, that sounds great. So two, 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 two angles to this. One is that I agree that the per type of people who will borrow Volt probably won't. I am not making an argument that the main line of business the Vicon DAO will be engaged in is lending Volt and like competing with like how MakerDAO lends DAC. You know, that's not what the idea is. The idea is that our line of business is producing Volt for those who wish to hold it and sourcing the yield, whichever means we can. So it's totally fine to us if Volt's not debt backed. You know what I mean? I guess what I'm saying is that or not backed by Volt debt. You know, the, the debt that backs Volt does not have to be Volt denominated. So even if there was literally zero Volt borrowing on Fuse and 100% of issuance was through the peg stability module, in this case, the, the, there are, the natural seller is the DAO itself. You know, we're the ones who are selling it. Um, and it's okay if there are not people who are naturally short of it on chain. Um, and it ties back into what I mentioned before about real world assets. Like, if DeFi yields, I guess ultimately, let me take a step back. I don't think it's um, likely that DeFi yields will remain suppressed compared to off-chain yield instruments over the long term because new instruments can be tokenized and brought on-chain. 
And then you add the magic of the additional risk of smart contracts plus some token incentives and the yields are a little bit higher. Um, I find it implausible. Like, I on the one hand, I feel like there is some some dead wood in the forest. You know, there's some stagnant growth. Uh, it's a little myopic in some senses. Like, I agree with the people who have some of these kind of criticisms of the DeFi yield environment. But it's also not that hard to imagine, you know, tokenized European Union bonds being brought on chain at a scale of hundreds of billions. Um, you know, the largest bank in France is making deals with MakerDAO, right? So if we have a situation where there's excess vault demand more than we can generate from on-chain yield, that's kind of like a good problem to have. Um, and that's why, you know, we're going to be thinking very proactively about additional yield sources and not just like, you know, lending on fees is one type of yield. Lending to like institutions or something through a platform like Maple, you know, this is not saying that that's something that we're doing, but just an example, um, is a slightly different type of yield on-chain. There might be opportunities to take Delta neutral funding rate positions on platforms like DYDX, which are then like, you know, like semi-DeFi, you know, that's a little bit different compared to what most people think of as DeFi yield farming, you know, but there are yield rates accessible on chain and between all of those and then the additional possibility of real world assets, um, I'm confident that we can generate, you know, and support a growing vault supply, but that we do, you know, it is a constraint, you know, it's just not a fatal, like a, I don't see it as a, a um what's the term i would use yeah it's not a um a blocker but it is a constraint um that we'll expand to fill the available yield that we can and then if we run out we'll have to go get more somewhere else yeah and i i guess this is like the big key difference between something like volt and maker because maker definitely does not i mean at least i hope they don't want uh die issued by the PSM to be the predominant form uh, of issuance because <clears throat> this provides an existential risk to the entire system because uh, the PSM basically relies on USDC for the most part. I don't know if they've added any other stable coins. Well, this, this is where it's time for my hot take of the day. Oh, let's um, do it. I don't think there is anything wrong with that. And that even if die were backed 100% by USDC, that would be okay except for the fact that people would react against it from an optic point. You know what I mean? Is that I actually think that it's a public good in a sense. And so this is my real hot take. And I, I tweeted a clip about this that I'll, I'll repeat again, which is people will be like, oh, DAI is just wrapped USDC. And I'm like, no, DAI is the largest reservoir of trapped USDC, uh, meaning that it is from the perspective of Circle impossible to take an enforcement action against like the concept that they would freeze all of the USDC in MakerDAO would be analogous to them freezing all of USDC on Uniswap. You know what I mean? It would be the end of them. Um, no one would ever use USDC again. Um, and so it is an existential risk in a sense, right? But it's the same type of existential risk as like the US government saying that it's not legal for any centralized exchange to offer DAI, as it would be as them saying like, you know, the, the type of risk is that like the federal government would come and forcibly stop circle from doing issuance or redemptions in the United States, um, more so than like circle would be told that they had to go shut down, just make her down. Um, you know, and that's why I think that there are existential risks in crypto, but you can't get away with them from them by being a decentralized stable coin. Um, the, in the end, we're all people, right. And the enforcement actions and problems can still be caused with the redeemability and usage of any system. Um, and so I sort of be like, MakerDAO is like the shield that protects us all. <laughs> you know, I want okay. to, to give them their praise. <laughs> okay, no, I, I think that's fair. And uh, it, it, might have, not, it might not even be that much of a hot take. Only in that people will just disagree on philosophical 
backgrounds, right? I think the idea, right. it, it, and this circles back to what we were talking about earlier, where, uh, you know, crypto was supposed to be this thing where we completely separate from the financial system. And in a, in a lot of ways, we become more intertwined. And maybe that was just crypto's destiny all along because it makes sense. And that's kind of a natural evolution for things. And so I think most of the people who are really concerned about the state of DAI and how much they rely on, on USDC are mostly just concerned from a philosophical point of view and not really from a practical point of view. And I, I think MakerDAO is also realizing this themselves. Of course, they would love to disperse risk a little bit because you never want to be too reliant on one thing ever uh, just because that's how <laughs> risk works. Like you, you never want to that's be right. overexposed. But from a practical perspective, I, I think I agree that it, it really just doesn't make sense for Circle to just unilaterally decide, you know what, we're going to nuke the, the PSM because we're just mad at MakerDAO because it sets this horrible precedent for uh, their participation in the ecosystem going forward. And you're right, nobody would use them. So I agree. Right. I, I don't think it's actually too hot of a hot take. I think it's a realistic take uh, that people just may disagree with. So from, from that perspective, actually, I think this is a, we can enter an interesting conversation about risk here. So earlier you mentioned that uh, DeFi yields are probably always going to be higher than not always, but uh, may on average be higher than like traditional finance yields because of smart contract risk and token uh, token incentives and things like that. How, how for how long do you think smart contract risk will continue to be this risk that's factored in to the yield? Because when I think for me, it it takes something very sketchy for me to be like, you know what, that smart contract is risky, but. All in all, I just don't even think about that anymore as a native DeFi user. But the average DeFi user or larger institutions or something might actually factor that in. So how long do you think that will be the case? Will it always be the case? Are we talking a few year time horizon? I, I mean, it just seems like this thing that'll, it, it's hard to know when it will go away or why it will go away. But do, have you ever like thought of that or do you have any like ideas on that? Well, I think that maybe I should have zoomed it out one step more and really it's not just smart contract risk, but it technical barriers to entry plus execution risk, right. right? So like just the fact that for institutions, it's kind of difficult to custody or use crypto assets. It's not familiar to them, creates a level of friction that will imply higher yields in my opinion. So like until, until like any TradFi firm in the major industrial countries easily can take on-chain positions, that there'll probably be some premium on certain things. And that means that basically certain things will be like a worse deal, right? And those who are on chain will have to pay a worse deal in order to get it. And then those who can provide that deal can make the money. Um, you know, in the same sense of like, there's only so many, um, you know, there's only so many stable coins on chain, right? You know, like it's a lot, but it's actually not that much compared to the US banking system, right? And things like that, where like any tokenized asset that has super high demand, um, there'll probably be some kind of a premium in that ecosystem. And that's how it is with stable coins, right? Where I feel like there's some kind of a yield premium. Um, when you look at like the risk and liquidity trade-offs versus like junk bonds, there's often, you know, like it seems like a better deal, like farming on curve, right? Like in a receipt pool, it's like, oh, you know, like there's definitely some risk to this, but I can pull out of it instantly at any time. Um, you know, or like, oh, I'm holding a three month junk bond, like Chinese bond is now going to go down 25%, you know, um, might be actually a better risk adjusted return. But I think that largely has to do with it being a smaller pool of players and that will change drastically over the next five or 10 years. But at the same time, so many new opportunities we can't possibly imagine will arise. And that's the other side of the table, right? It's like right. when there's a hundred times as many different entities using DeFi and a hundred times as much capital, um, you know, like hard capital, not just like 
market cap, quote, quote, um, then it'll be a very different world. Right. I, I agree. And I, and I was going to uh, tack on to the end of that, like the long tail of crypto happens to be very, 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 very long. Like there, there's so many types of opportunities you could take advantage of. And the more that, that DeFi continues to scale, the more that capital flows into the ecosystem, the more mind share that comes over to the space, the more opportunities that will pop up. And so it'll be really interesting to see how protocols, including Bolt, like manage this, this, I don't know, this risk spectrum, right. And figure out, you know, a risk, an opportunity uh, that seems risky to somebody who's running a venture fund or something like that is going to be very different maybe to an opportunity, like to the risk profile. Oh my God, I can't talk right now. To the risk profile of a DAO. So hedge funds or venture funds or whatever are going to have a very different risk profile to that of a DAO or an individual protocol. And so while you know a traditional hedge fund or something might be getting returns that are just slightly higher than something you could get in the current financial system, a DAO or whatever might be able to you know go a little bit down the tail, a little bit down the risk spectrum, and say you know what we're really comfortable with this idea, and so we're we're willing to you know take on this slightly additional risk for a more outsized return. And I, I think that's the the direction that the space is going to go because it just seems natural and it makes sense. So we're already seeing that, right? Like we we see a lot of uh, stablecoin funds who are only comfortable depositing their stablecoins into Compound or something like that and getting that like baby yield that's on it. But maybe it's better than a, a high yield yeah. strategy. If there's subinflation, maybe yield, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas with with DAOs, we're starting to see uh, some more crazy stuff that leverages, you know, the curve wars and and other things like that. So. Um, Circling back to Vault for a second, um, you've mentioned a couple of times in AMAs and things like that, this notion of Vault 1.5 or maybe Vault 2.0, whatever you're kind of feeling that day, I suppose. Can you can you leak some alpha on that and where the future direction of Vault goes from you know the initial idea launch to what your you know full full vision for it is? So this this is what I touched on briefly earlier about the the liquid governance through through fuse mechanism. Um, and it's the original motive of Vault is like, you know, we've been talking about all these different types of opportunities and ultimately like, it's not my role to evaluate all of these yield opportunities. Uh, we want to make these market processes and we want to build infrastructure for this all to happen in a way that's safe. Uh, that's you know, the challenge. Um, so the goal of what I originally called Vault V2, you know, I recognized that like, I was like, how could we, the original description was a permissionless onboarding of new lending markets, right? Um, and allocation of the Vault debt ceiling within those. Um, and I have essentially now figured out how we will do that. Um, and it was easier than I first thought, which is why I've been saying 1.5. Ever since I've gotten the chance to work with with the tribe, with the the merge, Fay and Rari protocols, things have accelerated as far as what's uh, possible for us. And so I originally thought it'd be like, oh, this will be a totally from scratch thing that will take me like a year to do and it'll be really hard. And now I'm like, oh, we can do it with this existing code mostly. And um, you know, it's very feasible. And the idea is twofold. One is what I talked about before of, the VCon governance token holders can borrow Vault for the other protocol controlled value assets at special terms, right? It's not over collateralized. It's you own 1% of the VCon DAO, you can borrow 1% of all the Vault. Um, and you then take it and put it into another Fuse pool, right? Or any whitelisted yield venue. Uh, and it could be Vault you're borrowing or it could be our PCB Fay. Uh, and the key point is right in the smart contract that enforces it has to go into a whitelisted yield venue. And the way we will do that whitelisting is through an optimistic governance process in the future. Um, at launch, right, it's just going to be hard-coded only. Like we have certain, and we're not even going to have this special fuse pool. It's just the Vault and the Fay will be in certain fuse pools. That's it. And then we'll deploy Vault Turbo after that. And then people will be able to have this borrowing mechanism. But the last thing will be the optimistic onboarding where like at first it will be a certain, you know, 
certain entities that are delegated by the DAO will have this power. Um, in the future, it'll be like anyone who has a minimum threshold of the VCon governance token can basically lock it up for a short time, um, you know, lock up their borrowing privilege and say, hey, I want to onboard this new fees pool to lend in. Um, and then there'll be a period in which what we call the note DAO, uh, this is a term created by uh, Tri, which I like, it's a, a relatively small quorum of token governance. Um, and in our case, a small enough quorum that our largest stakeholder tribe will be able to delegate to someone, you know, an entity to fulfill this role early on, um, will be able to veto the addition of new pools and there'll be a small fee to request this review, um, basically. So instead of token governance of like, hey, should we onboard this asset to MakerDAO? It's like, oh, you know, um, hey, I just want to create this fees pool. And if there's no objection, it goes through. Um, and then anyone can go, you know, VCon holder can go take Vault or PCB and allocate it into that pool um, proportionally. But they are, they do have skin in the game. That's the other side of it, right? Like, this is my big criticism. Um, my other hot take of the day uh, is my, criticism of curve like governance systems and that uh, the gauge model is like a tragedy of the commons where as an individual holder, let's say I've locked my curve for four years. My incentive is to maximize the profit I can generate from it during that time because I have no guarantee of what its value will be after those four years are over. Um, and the way I generate the most value from it is not by maximizing the swap volume on curve, but by accepting bribes. Um, and so I, my incentive is to take the highest bribe that I can and then direct curve emissions to wherever that goes. Um, and this leads to a tragedy of the commons where everyone's voting for sketchy stable coins that pay out the highest yield. And not all of them are sketchy, but it's like disproportionate, right? Where like, um, you know, the sketchier ones have the larger pool, you know, the riskier ones have the larger pools invariably. Right. Um, and I, again, it's not that it's always bad to be risky, but some of them I consider to be irresponsibly risky. Um, and especially the fact that they've let the curve pools grow to such a large size, um, you know, it ultimately will undermine the trustworthiness of the DAO um, and it is individual holders benefiting at the expense of the collective. And that's the change that we'll be making in the VCon tokenomics, right? Is that it's not like SNX, right? Where you have to over collateralize synthetics to mint the tokens, right? And you need like eight times as much SNX as the SDC you mint. It's one-to-one, -one, right? Where you borrow a pro rata share of the DAO's assets. So you could actually even be borrowing more than the value of your VCon tokens. But the key is that like, you're putting in a whitelisted yield venue. Let's say there was some problem with that yield venue it's very unlikely that 100% of the capital would be lost. And even if it was, you know, at least we then recover the value of your VCon token uh, and the DAO will be able to, you know, the general body of the governance is responsible if a yield venue goes toxic, right? Because they're whitelisted and we're supposed to manage that no yield venue that will have a systematic, like complete loss should be allowed. Um, and this brings me around to a second topic of interest. I know I'm no, keep zooming going. through here. No, it's um, really interesting. The idea that, of risk tiering of how we allocate capital and that our fundamental guarantee is that for every dollar, you know, every one VCon, there will always be that notional value, that face value of stable coins in our system and low risk venue, earning only a small return above inflation. You know, we won't be, but then the question is if we have more assets than that, what do we do with them? Uh, and also if people are willing to borrow vault on fuse, you know, we can also go a little bit riskier, right, than we would just lending stable coins because we have very direct control of that and we can control the interest rates more easily, right? Like we can't control the borrow rate of Fay in a fuse pool, but we can arbitrarily increase or decrease the amount of vault the DAO mints into a pool. So we have a lot more influence over the, the, the terms there. Um, so we can like encourage people to repay their borrows more easily by raising the stability fees like MakerDAO would. Um, so we have the idea that there will be like more than one vault 
turbo pool. You know, so there's this one where the, there's like the base one where you're allowed to borrow Volt or, or PCB Fay and then put it into these whitelisted fuse pools. There might be another one that only has our capital that is in excess of um, that backing we need for the Volt, but it whitelists substantially riskier venues uh, or even allows you to swap Volt for assets. You know, like if you want to, if you're a VCon holder and you want a long ETH, maybe you could do that, um, you know, if it's part of the surplus, right? And then you'll be able to, the key is that we'll have basically like a system price for how much our PCB needs to be earning. So if you're a holder of the VCon governance token, if you borrow Volt, you'll be paying to the DAO some small amount, like half a percent. Um, if you borrow Fay, you'll pay inflation plus that small amount, like half a percent. Um, so, you know, right now it'd be 8%, right? Yeah, that's a good amount. Um, and you would then take that out and lend it in a fees pool and anything that you earn more than that, you keep. And so that's what's exciting about the VCon governance token is it's a cash flow token. Um, and it's like directly how much you earn is proportional to your own individual risk decisions and the risk exposure you take on also is that you're not in a lump together with all the other token holders. And so, and you may have touched on this and I, I might've missed it. Is there any liquidation risk here for these borrowers who are borrowing against their, their VCon? There is not. However, there is something called a forced liquidation, meaning that if we judge that they have deployed capital into a pool and have lost it, right? Like we can see from an off-chain perspective that Al can say, oh, look, you know, this fees pool took toxic debt and lost 10% of its capital. We will trigger a forced liquidation, which says, hey, you have three days, you know, or X time period to repay the loan or else it will be open for liquidation. But before that, it is not. Um, okay. And then it's like, okay, let's say you only lost a little bit, then it's like, all right, I just got to sell pony up and then I can get my VCon back and it's worth it. You know, like you put up $10,000 of VCon, you lost $1,000 of Volt, you pay up, whatever. Um, if it's you lost more than your value, then it's like, all right, I'm out. Uh, and that means that that risky allocator is no longer a member of the DAO. Um, and this is why it's important how we whitelist the yield venues, right? Because the, the general body of VCon holders are the ones who take the loss in the event that the glosses are greater than that individual econ holders deposit. Um, and likewise, we might set things like hard debt ceilings for certain pools that are judged too risky, right? We're like, no matter what, no more than 1 million PCV into this, right? Those types of things um, overall to manage the risk so that ideally the goal is that the system would never have a loss that's larger than the surplus fund. Yeah, and we will always also be intending to grow the size of the system reserves. Um, that's one thing that my... Third DAO hot take of the day is that buybacks are really stupid. Um, and that I agree. no DAO should ever do token buybacks, um, pretty much. Like, <laughs> there's no need to do a token buyback. For, there would be no need for any DAO to do a token buyback in the next four years, pretty much. Like, they should all just be focused on growth, the whole industry. Um, and so we will always be trying to grow, like, what is that buffer between the amount in our treasury and the amount of circulating vault? Because that gives us two things. One, it allows us to engage in more lucrative yield opportunities as a DAO, which is good for us. Um, and the other is that it gives us leeway to expand the Volt supply in the future when we judge that it's safe to do so. Uh, well, we can expand it quickly, right? Uh, we already have additional backing. Um, so we could mint a large amount if it went above peg or do things like that. Um, but because we're going to be like, we want to be very strategic about the supply expansion. My ideal would be for the supply to expand along a perfectly smooth and predictable curve. Um, you know, that's not exactly possible. But the more buffer and surplus we have in the system, the easier it is for us to help cause that to be the case and to manage our risk over a longer period of time. Interesting. And so this this forced liquidation mechanism 
uh, is almost like slashing, right? You're, you're punishing people yeah, who kind of, okay, perfect. So for anybody not familiar, it's basically this concept of just punishing bad actors in an ecosystem and redistributing, uh, the, the funds that are, are liquidated or whatever to, to people who are rational actors. And so over time you kind of weed out anybody who would do, uh, stupid things essentially. And so uh, the other thing I, I think is I'm curious about here is what is the significance of allowing people to borrow uh, proportional to the total supply that they own versus the actual price uh, of econ at that time? Is that a philosophical thing? Is it a technical thing or what's kind of the logic there? It's mainly because the goal of the system is not to fully back the value of that PCV with that VCon, but to it's twofold. One, we are pricing the right to direct our protocol controlled value, um, right in the price of the VCon token. And the, the other part of it is that, so I, what it is is that we're using a financial Lego, which is a fuse pool as a governance mechanism. Um, so it's not actually about the VCon price. It doesn't matter. Even if the VCon price were zero, we wouldn't care. Um, you know, we would still let you borrow your pro rata share of the protocol controlled value because that's what VCon is, right? Um, and so I have no intentions of using VCon's price as an economic guarantee within the system. I think that's a weak model overall. Like when you have a system like, oh, we're going to use our governance token as a backstop. It's like, okay, well, the exact moment when you need that is the moment when it's going to be dumping, right? Um, you know, and we have, this has been borne out in practice with MakerDAO. And right at this point, I find it highly unlikely that if MakerDAO experienced the Black Thursday level failure, they could successfully backstop it with MKR emission. Uh, that would just be like an insane print uh, or, or public raise. Yeah, that essentially would result in the largest public raise of any DeFi protocol ever to backstop. Um, that would be a crazy... And that um, problem just scales with their size, right? That's right. And so we have just don't have that model at all, right? We have no yeah. concept of mass, like automatically mass minting VCon to backstop the system. Instead, I take the opposite perspective, which is that our goal is to optimize like the value throughput of the system as much as possible to make VCon's cash flow go as high as you can and make it as desirable to hold it as possible. And then in the future, our thought as VCon holders, like we want the VCon holders to be long-term aligned people who are into the cash flow, right? We're not, we're not trying to design it around price speculators who care about, oh, what's the price going to be next month? It's the, oh, okay, am I going to get a sustainable cash flow for the next year or two, right? And know that the value over time will derive from that um, due to you know, what I can do with the token. And in that sense, during good times, right, we want to actually be emitting more of the token. Because uh, we want to always be further decentralizing the DAO. And in any situation in which like your pro rata share of the PC, the protocol controlled value is less than the open market price of the VCon token, we should sell that VCon token and gather more PC. Um, and that's sort of the mindset of the DAO, right? Is that our goal is to grow our DAO's holdings as large as we can whenever it's a good deal for us to do so. Um, and this is sort of similar to what Olympus does, right? But for them, it was like, you know, it's a little bit different because it's a single asset and also because um, there's an idea of like a floor price, but also that it could increase without bound. And so there's some interesting price dynamics there. With VCon, you'll have this certain cash flow, right? So there's a known cash flow associated with it. So that should strongly influence what the price is, in my opinion. Like lots of DAO tokens, it's like, who even knows why it's the price that it is? It doesn't make sense, right? Like why is the uni token the price that it is? I don't know. It doesn't do anything. Um, That's a whole rabbit yeah. hole in itself right there. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm happy, And I'm happy to rabbit hole about token design because that's something I think about a lot. Um, but yeah, the idea that there'll be a very transparent 
cash flow. And so the idea of the VCon holders is like, do I think that this current cash flow is good and that the system will grow such that it will be a larger cash flow in the future? Um, in which case, you know, that's good. I should be, people should be buying in and we'll, we'll sell it. Like taking one step back, it's the same thing with curve. Like for most governance token, the price of the token being high has no benefit for the users. Of the like there's no way in which the maker price being really high is good for value holders really like, like, oh, like, oh, backstop, but like, oh, but then it could go down later, right? Like, so the price being high now has no benefit on Um, And that's the case for a lot of governance tokens. And I would like it to be different in the VCon case where like the VCon token price being extremely high means there's a lot of interest in the vault system. And that should mean that we're taking on more capital to better serve that interest. Um, and so we'll probably have some kind of a mechanism for like a VCon drip, um, whether that's Olympus bonds or a stability module, but something where we're like, you know, each week there's a certain amount of VCon available contingent upon the fact that it will only sell at a price that's increasing the total amount of PCV assets per VCon. Mm. Interesting. Right, that kind of thing. And so that'll be one way, like we, we sell, we sell vault, which is selling debt. Right. And then there's right. the VCon governance token, which is equity and essentially, you know, um, yeah, whereas at least analogous to it. Um, and because it has that sort of cash flow associated with it. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And, and I'm bringing in another tweet here from Unbanksy, who's a little bit of a, a big brain over at the Olympus Dow team. And he's also a good friend. Uh, and in his tweet basically said, and, and the reason I'm pulling this up is because you engaged with it in an interesting way. And I want to explore this. He said, I'm starting to think of Bolt protocol as a layer above the farming as a service solutions. And the consequence is that yield farmers would rather delegate their stables to VCon and then farming as a service protocols fight for, for governance rights via acquisition of VCon. And so he says this is bullish for VCon and, and the supply of Volt, and we don't have to go into price dynamics and stuff like that. But then your response was basically that uh, you could see Volt becoming this like risk ratings agency for on-chain yield sources. And so can you expand on that a little bit? Have One, was that an idea that you kind of had in mind already, or was that a fresh idea that kind of landed on a timeline and you're like, wait, this kind of makes a, a little bit of sense? Oh, that absolutely resonated. It was just a different way of putting it that I thought like, oh yeah, like part of it is that I am like, I am, a, you know, I'm a DeFi user, but I'm not the most degen of people. And so sometimes it gets put in a different way where I'm like, oh yeah, this is actually very analogous to that market sector. Um, and that's what I was thinking there is that ultimately what our DAO will do is something very similar to what a central bank does, right? Or what a major bank does is that they evaluate like loans and credit yield instruments, right? And they just stop make decisions about their risk and, um, and pricing and direct capital around, but like, they're not the ones originating the loan, right? And that's sort of the same perspective here. We're like, we're not going to be the ones going and yield farming and selling governance tokens, right? But we might be like, okay, you know, we'll deploy our PCV into this year in vault or that year in vault and we assess the risk of them or we, oh, there's this new yield aggregator or this new thing. We assess the, it's, it's a huge burden for a small user to need to like switch, even to switch vaults, right? Like to switch from, oh, like, should I be in the urine dye vault or the USDC vault, right? Like one of them, the yield goes up, like, let's say it's a one, Twice as high, right? It's like a full percent or two percent higher. So now I've got to go pay all this gas to switch, right? Like ultimately, I view that most people don't really care whether they're holding Dai, USDC, whatever stable coin it is, right? What they want is to just have something that's a robust stable coin uh, that holds its peg and that earns them that they can then deposit and earn the yield um, when you know with their risk off capital. 
And it's a huge, huge burden. Like even if you have, you know, hundred thousand dollars in stable coins, it's essentially impossible to do frequent um, farming or rotation operations on L1 with gas costs. Although lately it's a little cheaper. So uh, we'll see yeah, the bear market <laughs> silver lining of the, the bear. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there is a very strong case to be made for that, that a yield bearing asset that anyone can just swap into, right? Like I'm imagining the perspective of someone who's like trading between ETH and USDC or ETH and DAI. And they're like, oh, you know, when I'm risk off, I'd like to put it in a yield aggregator, right? But then I have to like, you know, go deposit. So it's like more gas depositing into a vault as opposed to a token swap. And I have to decide which stable coin it will be. And like, maybe the rates will change. Um, the idea that it's very easy for a passive holder to swap in. Um, and that then they don't need to make any changes because the there's a certain guarantee about the yield. And I think things like this, like, I don't want to say fixed yield vault, but like, um, I think that this is a very similar concept to what OM actually is. Um, and that there could be similar things like this, where it's a natively yield bearing asset that has a certain risk profile. Um, and for Volt, our thesis is it's like the most basal one because it's a real rate of return of zero. It's true stability. So it should be like the most, if I think what would be like the most liquid default unit, it would be a unit of stable value, right? Like, um, and then if you're earning yield on top of that, then it's risk on or you're locking up or you're getting some kind of liquidity thing changed. But like, if I just want to hold it and I'm not causing anybody, yeah, you know, I just want to swap in, I should be able to at least preserve my wealth. And that's a very good shelling point is the base most liquid unit. And under the hood, we'll have both, you know, we're depositing to all these yield aggregators, but there's also the idea that um, we will offer our own yield product as well. Um, so things like, you know, we've often talked about this in the concept of Olympus bonds. Um, if anyone, I don't know, the, the the nerds among us who may have read Tarun Chitra's paper about Olympus DAO, that, that really opened my eyes about the, the control theory of the system. Um, and the idea that, well, for Olympus, it's a little bit different than for us. Um, but like if we were offering Volt bonds, zero coupon bonds, where like you give us Volt and we give you Volt, uh, you know, slightly more Volt uh, after a, a period of time, that has a big advantage for the DAO is that like, normally we have to maintain sufficient liquidity within the system. And this is a thing with every stablecoin issuer. Like there's both risk of loss, but there's also just liquidity risk where like you cannot withdraw an unlimited amount of capital from a fuse pool in a one transaction, right? You know, there's people borrowing it. Um, just like MakerDAO, they cannot wind down all the die borrows in an hour, right? You know, like there's a certain amount of time people, even if they raise the stability fees, it takes time for people to do things and react in the system. And so there can be instability of the price because it takes time for people to do these responses. So we have to think, keep this in mind with our yield venues. And if we want to deposit in something that's less liquid, it is really helpful to have a portion of the supply that is predictably less liquid as well. Mm. And so then it becomes like, oh, the DAO would be willing. The DAO knows like, like a hypothetical example, currently you can earn like 20% lending USDC on Maple Finance. The DAO is like, but you have to lock for two months. Uh, and of course you have to do like KYC or other problems, but like we can't do it. But let's say that there's some platform where it's like, oh, it's a, the DAO is able to deploy capital into like a real world bond beats inflation, but it's a six month lock. Um, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's pretty tough for us. But if we had 10% of the supply that was locked um, for three months, right, on a rolling basis because of our bond program, then we can do it with a lot more confidence. And then if we identify a yield opportunity that's greater than inflation, as well as greater than the costs, the premium that we have to pay for the bonding, um, then we can engage in those less liquid opportunities. Um, and I think that will be a really important for us. And that's what, 
That's why banks offer things like certificates of deposits and governments offer treasury bonds in the first place, because it creates a, a yield curve and a predictable um, financial ecosystem. Amazing. And as we approach the end of the episode here, I want to touch on on use cases for Volt that are not obvious. So some of the things that you're thinking, and we've kind of touched on a few of them uh, throughout this episode, but I would love if you could uh, maybe give a peek into the future, I guess. And so, you know, the obvious use case is that people either, you know, mint Volt via the PSM and just hold it, or they buy Volt and just hold it in order to preserve their wealth over time. But what are some of the uh, maybe more obscure or less obvious use cases that you're excited about for Vault or, you know, that you could see Vault kind of like evolving into over time? Well, there's two like um, business angles that I would highlight. One is like the Dow to Dow angle. You know, we're very interested in partnering with treasury running DAOs. And like, so any DAO that has a treasury and is not a yield aggregator in themselves would probably be better off putting their treasury into Vault or some other yield aggregator, right? Than trying to manage it on their own. Um, and so our hope is that for DAOs that have a treasury that wants to be risk minimal, you know, they're not seeking to earn a high return on it. They just want to, you know, like they're currently holding DAI, right? Something like that. Um, and one example I'm thinking of here is Olympus DAO, right? Like we're very keen and we're in discussion with them to get some vault into that treasury. Uh, and that there's no reason to be holding zero yield passive stable coins when you could hold vault instead um, as the default. Um, and there's also a lot of people who are just like sitting idly in stables on compound or Ava, you know, earning less than inflation, right? Um, again, that could all be sort of like that, like fairly illiquid stable coin supply that's just chilling and earning less than inflation there. There's no reason why that shouldn't be Volt. Um, so that's one thing that we think about. The other is personally, I feel that out of all the, you know, DeFi has a lot of very cool and complicated products. I personally love them. Um, the vast majority of people on this earth will never use them, um, you know, and it's only a tiny portion of people who can send their own transactions. And it will be a long time before that fundamentally changes. Um, and so I am very keen on getting Vault to a wider audience, right? And like in the same way that Bitcoin and Ethereum have reached countless people, um, we want to do the same. And that means you have to go through centralized intermediate exchange. Uh, and so that's something that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. Uh, it's not something that we can easily do like in every jurisdiction, but um, I think that the idea of a stablecoin that innately preserves your wealth is something that will be very appealing. Like you don't really want centralized exchanges having to integrate with DeFi platforms, right? Like having to deposit their funds into smart contracts and pull them out and manage liquidity. And like, then there's like operational risk of them having the custody and putting it in and out and all these kind of issues. And like, if instead there was an easily, it's just an ERC 20, right? You know, it's like anything else they can integrate and then you can withdraw it to your hardware wallet if you want. Um, will be very accessible. And so that's one of my hopes is that um, once we reach our initial, you know, and we're not going to be going to that kind of mass market first, right? We need to reach a certain level of stability and liquidity and um, get Volt 1.5 implemented basically and have this scalable yield mechanism. But that's how I really see it scaling is that we need to reach the people who are not currently in access to DeFi and who, but who might like, you know, who are living in a country where it's like, oh, we don't really know what the inflation rate is going to be over the next 10 years, right? Like, there's been decades in our country's history where it was extremely high and like all people's savings were wiped out. And then I've got a crypto exchange and I could hold the DAI, USDC, ETH, Bitcoin, or like Gov. Uh, and now you add Vault into that mix. And I think that's actually a very powerful niche that could be filled that's not being addressed very well right now. I agree. And and it, it's more appealing than something 
sorry, Bitcoin maximalist, than holding, encouraging these people to hold something like Bitcoin just because of volatility, right? So at least if you're holding bolts, you have a little bit more predict predictability. You know that there's a, a, mostly a, a price floor, right? Like it's never going to just dump right. to dump 30% in the day or something like that, unless it's already trading way above uh, its expected price. In, in that case, then you're still outperforming inflation if you're just holding cash or you're still in a good a win-win scenario here either way. So any volatility won't be a volatility that's super bad for you like it is in the case of just holding Bitcoin or ETH. That sounds great. Right. So, ultimately, yeah, like that's my take, like, and maybe my hottest take of the night, uh, we'll get out of the, of the day, is that L1 volatile assets like Bitcoin and ETH are not money. They never will. Um, there's no way that they uh -oh. can... <laughs> there's no way that they can consistently preserve purchasing power over arbitrary time scale right because just because like the utilization of the network could go way up and it gets way more valuable right you know um like if a thousand times you know so that's great for you as an investment right but then the corollary is that it can go down uh and so if you're like putting away savings to pay your you know, your expenses in the next few months or like your savings for your your you know you're currently 50 and you're saving for your retirement you're not going to put all your money into those and that's irresponsible to advocate that people do. And like, that's why my bone to pick a Bitcoin maxi is like, it's not safe. It's risky. It might be a great investment. Um, it might be the best investment in the history of the world, right? But that doesn't change the fact that it's risky and that depending on your time horizon, it affects whether it's a good choice or not. And so like Volt is for your savings and for those who either need like, it, where the sh most important thing is a guarantee of preserving your value, that store of value. Um, and that you're not, you know, if you're looking for the speculative return, right, you've got your ETH, you've got your VCon, who knows? Um, but you're in the vault is about stability. And that's why in my Twitter profile, it says stablecoin max, uh, because stablecoins are really like the best way. And it doesn't have to just be vault, but it's the best answer, in my opinion, to like a neutral global currency uh, will be something like a stablecoin. Hmm. Somebody told me that hex.com was the best investment uh, in, in the whole world. <laughs> it's a very niche, <laughs> very niche joke. I don't know how many people get it. But um, anyways, to, to wrap things up here, uh, I, I'm curious about the roadmap. So I recently saw a tweet about you guys are finally going under audit. So where are we at in term? And obviously do not say a date on here just for your sanity. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, where are we at as far as roadmap? What do you think it's looking like over the next couple of weeks, months, et cetera? So we're currently out for preliminary audit, I would say. It's like a small team, you know, uh, due diligence. Our main public audit will be Code Arena. Um, we have signed with Code Arena. You know, it's on the books. Um, the final date will be announced by the end of this week. Um, originally, we were hoping to do a Code Arena audit starting March 24th. It might be like one week later. Um, we're finalizing uh, when that will be, but very soon, uh, within the next two, three weeks. Um, and there'll be this one-week public audit. After that, we're also working on finalizing stone audit, meaning that we're going to do this public process of code everyone can participate. We get any feedback, make those changes, and we have our top tier audit firm do the final review. Um, we're working on getting that locked down as kind of like a last minute thing, but it looks like it looks good for that. Um, and then as soon as that's done, we will immediately deploy. Um, so they're actually that's what we kind of fun with the launch is that like we're not hyping up the contract deployments. Uh, it's going to be a guarded launch. We'll launch as soon as we're ready. Um, so, you know, the people who are interested should keep their, their ears tuned. And then there'll be a one month guarded launch period before the LVP or the token launch. So during this guarded launch, there'll be no incentives. It's just that the system will be live and running and there'll be reasonable caps. So those who are, you know, 
really interested in getting in and trying it out, getting some of that vault supply, which is you know, limited um, and will will be limited even following the guard launch can do so. And it just gives us a chance to test and prod a little bit um, and let people get used to how the system works before we kick off the token and the incentives and all of that, which will really um, hopefully start the the ball going. What we're trying to do, I was inspired by Ribbon where they had a you know very long and cautious launch process that worked very well and, and had minimal volatility for their users. Um, and so we want to take our time and make sure that, you know, this is a very reliable and trustworthy system. And the worst thing would be to have some, you know, big blow up early on that's needless due to us just being a little too hasty to, to launch, right? Like one or two weeks is not what's important. What's important is long-term credible neutrality and trust. So that's what I want to emphasize to everyone listening is that like, I'm I audit maxi. We're going to be very careful about security um, and that we'll have an ongoing like bounty program. And I urge anyone who's technically literate to participate in our code arena audit, you know, there'll be bounties for that. And in addition to the, um, like hosted bounties, there'll also be bonuses of like additional VCon rewards for those who, anyone who finds like a critical or major um, type of thing in the system. Um, you know, so we're going to be really uh, proactive about that. Awesome. And this was a, an, an exciting conversation. I'm really looking forward to, to the launch. I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to join me. We just knocked out over an hour, which and it just flew by because we were touching on, on so many things, but I think there's a lot of interesting information in, in this entire episode for people to unpack. And I'm sure a lot of people will be, be curious about the ways in which they can interact with the system. If you want to keep up with Volt, you can follow them. It's at Volt Protocol on Twitter and VoltProtocol.com, if I'm not mistaken, is the website. Is there any other thing you want to shout out before we before we close things off? Just the last word that as everyone can tell, I'm an absolute you know mechanism nerd that, that these kind of conversations are the main thing that drew me to this space and that you can always hit me up at one true Kirk on Twitter and you know anyone who has like sincere questions or or wants to preferably tweet out, you know, no need to keep in the DMs. It's good to have conversations, let everyone hear it. Um, and I'm always down to answer questions or engage about any crypto topic. Awesome. Well, thanks again for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you, Colton. I hope you have a great day.